Hello and welcome to Civil War Weekly, the podcast that answers the question, what happened this week in the American Civil War? I'm your host, Tim Patrick, and this is episode 108, April 10th to April 16th, 1863. Last week, we had another Union attempt to take Charleston Harbor. This is going to be the relative end for Admiral Samuel DuPont. Likewise, it will be the end of Admiral Foote, who is sent to replace him, but will not make it, dying from Bright's disease in June. We also began to really introduce the Chancellorsville campaign. Before we know it, we're going to be fighting that battle, which is pretty crazy to believe. This week, we have a good handful of events. We'll be jumping around just a little bit, but I think order-wise, let's take a look at the end of the week and kind of work our way back. Before we do that, though, just a quick plug for the Patreon. Once again, by the time this episode airs, we should be having our next Patreon episode posted. That's going to be a movie review for the John Wayne movie, also with William Holden, The Horse Soldiers. And that's going to connect very well with actually what we got going on next week. It's actually, it's also going to pair fairly nicely with a raid that we have this week, although that movie is not based on the Abel Straight raid, but it gives us sort of something to go off of as well, so we can kind of maybe compare and contrast those two events. So if that sounds like something that would interest you, you want to hear that, there is a link to the Patreon in the show description, and of course, the proceeds go to the general upkeep of the show, and they are greatly appreciated. Let's go ahead and head to Louisiana. So, in connection with Grant's potential moves on Vicksburg, Nathaniel Banks and his command at New Orleans would also be involved. They would be tasked with moving on Port Hudson, sitting just above Baton Rouge. If you recall, a strong position, just like Vicksburg, that could impede any traffic on the Mississippi River. To get at Port Hudson, however, was not going to be an easy task. Banks would advance his 19th Corps further west from New Orleans to gain a footing on the Atchafalaya River, which tracks north. This is also going to be known as the Bayou Teche Offensive. It will be known as at least one of the Bayou Teche Offensives because this area is sort of going to be traded back and forth. It's sort of uh, the equivalent of, say, Northern Virginia and some of that territory that we see where the armies are moving in and out. So it is a more of a Louisiana version of that. It is going to be important to securing more cotton, which could be used as a source of income by the federal government. Banks could use the river to build bases of supply and even cut onto the Mississippi River north of Port Hudson, and at least this was going to be his plan. Major General Richard Taylor and his Louisiana department was in the way, occupying earthworks known as Fort Bisland in the area. Clearing away Taylor was going to be necessary for any movement further north. The District of Louisiana does have some interesting units, including the Crescent Regiment, as we have talked about before, as well as the 10th Louisiana Battalion, also known as the Yellow Jackets, getting their name from the yellow cotton suits they wore when initially enlisting. 
Taylor also has Sibley's Texas Brigade making another appearance, maybe the first one even since their failed invasion of New Mexico we talked about back in 1862. Overall, he probably has some 4,000 men, giving him a severe disadvantage, but nonetheless could harass any northern thrust by the enemy. The 19th Corps also has some interesting names, many of which we have already talked about. Banks would for a time, not until later in the campaign though, have as his chief of staff, Charles Pomeroy Stone. Interestingly, Joe Hooker had asked Stanton to reinstate Stone, but Stanton had declined. Sort of goes to show you exactly how much Stanton ended up disliking McClellan and his uh, sort of supporters. Charles Pomeroy Stone from all the way back in Bull's Bluff being a victim, and also Fitzjohn Porter. We can also classify Fitzjohn in that category. Stone will be in the chief of staff role for the Port Hudson campaign, as well as the Red River campaign, which we're going to get into in 1864. Divisions in the Corps are commanded by Christopher Auger, who we met at Cedar Mountain, as well as Cuvier Grover and Thomas Sherman, if you remember the disappointing mistaken brother of William T. Another was commanded by Halbert Payne, a Republican who would go on to serve in Congress for the state of Wisconsin. Later in the campaign, this corps will be supplemented by several regiments of U.S. color troops forming a corps d'Afrique. Also interesting is that Banks will also have a good amount of loyal U.S. Louisiana regiments under his command. Another great example of sentiment shifting amongst those in the South. Indeed, a state like Louisiana, and soon enough Mississippi, is going to lose their zeal for the cause in Southern independence after, say, a New Orleans falls, and there is a zero prospect of the Confederacy getting it back. If you can't hold on to your largest city, and arguably most important city, then things are not going to bode well. On April the 9th, Nathaniel Banks would begin his operations by landing some 15,000 men at Brashear City, and then moving up Bayou Teche toward Franklin. Fort Bislin was situated on the way to Franklin, posing an obstacle. Sibley has his Texas men and some 18 artillery pieces arrayed on both sides of the Teche Bayou, ready for a potential federal assault. Banks and his men would assault through sugarcane fields at the Confederates on April 12th. Not budging them from their position, the two sides would settle for an artillery duel. Sibley was ordered by Taylor to conduct an early morning assault to maybe relieve some of the pressure. This was supposed to kick off early morning on the 13th, but Sibley would not do so, allowing the regularly scheduled action to resume. We can probably assume from what we know of Sibley that he was maybe drunk when he received those orders, but perhaps that is a little too unfair. Flanking movements and assaults were turned away by the rebels. Meanwhile, the Confederates steamed down a gunboat, which should have looked familiar to the Union forces, as it had been captured by the Confederates. The Diana would engage the Federals, but a lucky shot would pierce her armor and force her to withdraw. Banks would prepare for a general assault, but call it off, 
as we will soon see why. Taylor would realize that further resistance was going to be futile, so he called for a withdrawal. Casualty figures are hard to tell, but it is listed as maybe 230 on the federal side against 450 on the Confederate side. It's always interesting, so most of the time in the Civil War when you have a attacking force, they're going to suffer more casualties, right? But in this particular instance, especially in these farther reaches of the war, it's sort of going to be a trickle-down effect for the Confederate armies. They're going to be less supplied, so they're going to have inferior weapons, and the Union armies are still going to have a very large advantage in artillery. And if the Confederate forces are not having, say, as many rifled pieces as the Union have, if you're going to get into an artillery duel, then there are probably going to be more casualties inflicted on the part of the South. Now, while the main force was occupied by Fort Bislin, Cuvier Grover and his division would actually land near Franklin, Louisiana, in an effort to cut off Taylor and his force. Banks had been told of the successful landing, and so he called off his general assault, as he wanted there to be enough time to set up the trap for the District of Louisiana. Taylor realized that Grover had been landing behind him via reports from cavalry, wanting maybe the combined operation with Sibley and the Diana to recall that division. Alfred Mouton would be placed in command of a rearguard effort. Skirmishing would begin shortly after the Union division landed, Grover making his way toward Bayou Teche, securing key bridges in the process. Grover then decided to wait until his entire command was assembled and ready, probably thinking there were more rebels in front of him than there actually were from the contact he already made. Taylor would ambush Grover on April 14th, kicking off an action known as Irish Bend. The rebel general had selected good terrain in which to fight, which would make up for his inferior numbers. Still, there would be sufficient pressure on his line, which would cause the southerner to order a charge out from the wooded terrain. The Federal line was broken, but quickly stabilized with a counter-strike. The Diana would return and help in the fighting, which probably was another reason why Grover thought he was facing a larger force than he was. This would cause the Federals to stop their advance, and in so doing, they would allow Taylor to escape with his army toward New Iberia, further to the west. Grover would shortly link up with Banks, who was taking his time coming up from the bayou. Irish Bend would result in 353 northern casualties compared to an unknown number of rebels, although Union sources cite at least 21 killed. Overall, this would be a campaign of missed opportunity for Banks. He very well could have destroyed Taylor and his entire force during these engagements. As it was, he would advance up the Tesh region in pursuit of the rebels. Tom Green would be dispatched to engage the Federals at a place called Vermilion, destroying a bridge there and allowing for the Confederates to escape all the way to Shreveport. Banks and his army would capture much in terms of sugar and cotton, sending it back down the bayou so that it could be shipped north. Many escaped slaves would make their way south as well, some of them forming large parts of future U.S. colored regiments. Unfortunately, though, the Federals would not occupy this region. 
some of the force would be sent back south as Banks made his way toward Port Hudson. Originally, he had been ordered to support Grant and join in on the effort to capture Vicksburg, but the 19th Corps would move to Port Hudson to begin the siege there soon enough. We're going to talk about it when we get into May, but this is going to create an interesting dynamic between Grant and Banks. You see, Banks actually outranks Grant, so he would, in effect, take over for the operation in general. Grant doesn't want that to happen. He wants to be in charge of the Vicksburg siege and campaign in general. Banks is going to want to kind of forge his own path as well, so he wants to also get some glory, essentially. But neither side is really going to effectively support one another, and we'll see that at the conclusion of the Grierson raid next week as well, in that they're not going to share troops very well. Grant's going to take in a lot of reinforcements. Banks isn't going to have enough. So there's always going to be this weird dynamic here in this region while these two generals are operating. Speaking of Grant, though, I think we should continue with further operations to assist him, which would also assist the main diversion, which we are going to talk about next week. We're going to use our time this week to talk about a raid kicked off by Abel Strait. Strait was from Indiana and commanded a brigade of infantry in the Army of the Cumberland. He would present a plan to James Garfield and then General Rosecrans, highlighting a way for him to penetrate the South using his command and mules. Now, we've already talked about mules and the downsides of using them, but it should be pointed out that Strait commanded a brigade of infantry, which meant these men were not used to traveling by any kind of horse flesh, albeit mixed with a donkey. Another problem with mules, in case you did not know, is that they bray, and if there are large quantities of them, it can be very loud. I can pause if you would like to look up a YouTube video, like I did, so that you can indeed confirm that a braying mule makes an unpleasant noise, especially if they are all talking to each other. So keeping that in mind, it would not be hard to track a large party of mules. Interestingly enough, the expedition was almost sidetracked because of a mule stampede, which is not a good omen for the raiders. There are several accounts in some of the memoirs that we've read and talked about in the Patreon feed where mules are not painted in the best light. It's one particular instance where, I think this was in hardtack and coffee, where a mule has all this stuff on his back and he just decides he's going to jump into the river and not only shed the rider, but also shed the supplies as well. And obviously that was not met with a good reception by the federal soldiers. But let's talk about the plan. Strait was actually assisted by cavalry units from Federal Tennessee and Federal Alabama. It would be Alabama that would be the target of this particular action. Through northern Alabama and into Georgia was the goal, which would obviously draw much attention to the Confederates there and reinforcements that could be sent to Pemberton in Vicksburg. Grenville Dodge would assist Strait in screening his forces, not only from Philip Roddy's cavalry command, but also that of Nathan Bedford Forrest. They would start from Tuscumbia, Alabama, and then move through that state, 
Dodge, eventually allowing for the Jackass Cavalry, as they were known, to continue on their mission into Georgia. Overall, Strait had some 1,700 men, a good-sized raiding party. Unfortunately for Strait, Dodge would fail in his task, missing a rendezvous at Moulton, Alabama, and not adequately screening or otherwise drawing the attention of Nathan Bedford Forrest and his cavalry. Because of this, almost from the get-go, Forrest would be on the heels of the Federals, harassing them fairly early in the operation. During this time, Forrest would show a dogged determination in running down his foe. Now we sort of messed up with the timeline just a little bit because this action is going to be happening simultaneously with the main event we will talk about next week, so just keep that in mind. Forrest will catch up with Strait's men at a place called Day's Gap, and then again at Hog Mountain on April 30th, both of these locations to the southeast of Moulton. In doing that, we should point out that Strait is doing a good job of drawing away Forrest, although I dare say that having Forrest coming after you is not going to be a pleasant prospect, even if it was just the big Tennessean himself. Reportedly, during the chase, Forrest would physically strike a scout who reported that he had heard of the whereabouts of the Federals, without actually laying eyes on them himself. I believe that the quote reads something like, Forrest will in fact kill him if he fed him a pack of lies again, or something to that effect. So, you can use your imagination. The Day's Gap and Hog Mountain engagements were small Federal victories. Strait was able to use charges by his men to thwart the Confederate efforts to surround his forces. Forrest would be frustrated even further with a successful ambush of his men. Nathan's brother William was actually wounded as a result of this ambush. There started to arise a fairly serious issue as a result of the chase for the Federals, however. They were not allowed to rest, either men or mounts trying to get away from Forrest and his pursuing troopers. Mules provided for the expedition were already not in the best shape, many of them dying from exhaustion during the journey. It was hard to replenish so many losses from the countryside. In addition, while involved in a chase, it was hard to successfully live off the country. In a raid like this, that's going to be the idea, is that you're going to be able to draw off the southern population, and especially if it's in an area that has not really seen a whole lot of war, this could be a good strategy. But if they're not allowed to do that, then the infantrymen who are turned cavalry are not going to be in the best of physical conditions. Strait realized he could not continue with the way things were going. If he could make it to Rome, Georgia, he could use earthworks there to defend against the attacking cavalry. One could perhaps make the connection that he figured Forrest may not want to have a repeat of Dover, which occurred earlier in the year. But getting there was going to be a major problem. Strait would reach Gadsden, Alabama, and set up defensively across Black Creek. The Federals had successfully destroyed a bridge, which stymied the attacking Forrest. Luckily for Forrest, though, he would run into 16-year-old Emma Sanson who would inform Forrest of a ford nearby. Riding with Sansom, Forrest would allow the teenager to show him the spot, 
making sure to shield her from the fire of the Northerners. This would allow for the Confederates to cross the creek and continue after Strait. Forrest would then make sure to safely return Sansom, requesting that one of his killed troopers be buried before moving on. This is just going to add into the mythological story, say, of Forrest, this kind of antidote, while most likely true and maybe embellished just a little bit, is just going to go more toward his legend. For straight, the options were starting to run out. Militia at Rome had turned away an attempt by his men to enter the town, and his ammunition was running out, some being damaged in the numerous crossings. On May 3rd, Forrest would catch up to him at Cedar Bluff, Alabama. In so doing, he would use his trademark deception in making Strait believe he was surrounded and outnumbered. After the surrender, the Union colonel would cry foul and wish to renew the fight. But the chase was over, Forrest having captured some 1,500 men at the loss of 65 casualties during the fighting. Strait would spend some time in Libby Prison and remarkably tunnel out in 1864, returning to command in the West. After the war, he will become a senator from Indiana. For Forrest, the raid would have a very different outcome. During the Battle of Days Gap, a lieutenant of artillery, Andrew Gold, would abandon his guns, allowing them to fall in the hands of the enemy. Rather than carry them off and hinder their flight, the Union troopers would spike them. Now something we should know about Forrest is that he really likes his artillery. You remember he liked to use them in unconventional ways, like advancing his artillery with no support, something that your normal army officer in the Union Army would probably not even think of. So the loss of the guns was going to be irritating to the cavalry officer. He would consider Gould a coward and have him transferred from his command. Gould would afterward confront Forrest about the transfer on June 3rd, which led to an argument where Forrest confirmed his belief that Gould was, in fact, a coward. Not one to shy away from saying what he was thinking was Forrest. Gould would produce a pistol and shoot the Confederate general in the hip, but not without being mortally wounded with a knife by the fiery officer. Forrest would actually chase out after Gould through the streets, causing quite the scene, making sure to arm himself before he went. That's definitely also, I don't know, really know what's scarier to have Forrest riding after you if you're a federal cavalryman or chasing you with a pistol and a knife through the streets. Uh, you having also tried to kill him. Those two things don't sound like they would be particularly pleasant. Forrest would actually chase him away from receiving medical treatment. Reportedly, though, he would renege and allow for Gold to seek medical help. Gold would die from his wounds, perhaps requesting forgiveness from Forrest before expiring. Forrest was actually deemed to have received a mortal wound as well. Amazingly, he would recover, and recover in time to participate in the Chickamauga Campaign in September of 1863. Once again, and we talked about it during the Abel Strait Raid, this is going to add toward 
just the legend of Forrest, these kinds of stories. We can switch gears and head into Tennessee. Now this action actually occurred before Strait's raid, and it's important to note that because Nathan Bedford Forrest is involved as part of Vandor's cavalry. So far in Tennessee, it has been mostly jockeying for position with the cavalry from the north and the south. The first battle of Franklin is no different. If you remember, Franklin is north of Thompson Station, but south of Brentwood. Gordon Granger would believe that Van Dorn was actually conducting another raid on that town, important for the railroad if you recall. General David Stanley was already in the process of checking Van Dorn when Granger came to the conclusion that he should assault the enemy. Van Dorn was taken by relative surprise by the 4th U.S. Cavalry, which captured a battery. Forrest would counterattack and push the Federals back. The attack, while not gaining too much, would cease Van Dorn's operations in the area. We are getting very close to the start of the Tullahoma campaign, so stay tuned for that. Finishing up this week, we have the small but fairly important siege of Suffolk. From the last few episodes, we have started to introduce Longstreet's operations away from the Army of Northern Virginia. Of course, there is an obvious problem with Longstreet being away from the main army, which we're going to get into in due time. As far as the gathering of supplies went, it was very successful for the Confederacy, just like DHL's operations in North Carolina. There was a Union garrison at the town of Suffolk in southeast Virginia. While gathering the supplies necessary, Longstreet would put the city to siege. The town had been strengthened defensively by General John Peck, the Confederates constructing earthworks of their own to face them. Despite this, though, Suffolk was never truly cut off from being supplied. And it could be supplied from the Naseman River, which flows into the James, right where that river empties into the Chesapeake Bay. Originally, the Confederates had an opportunity of direct assault, but declined. This is going to be a common theme for Longstreet acting on his own, so stay tuned for Knoxville. Peck would set up his defenses from the south, but did not pay too much attention to the river. The federal commander should have been more worried about this area, especially because there was a resupply opportunity from this route. Confederates under John Bell Hood would try to construct a battery to close off that option. Federals were able to peat them to the punch and erect a battery of their own. Heavy artillery would punctuate much of the action. Union troops would also have a successful amphibious assault that would capture a battery and 130 prisoners at a place called Hills Point. This was a great example of a good joint operation between the Army and the Navy, something we really don't see a whole lot of in the Civil War. Troop strengths on both sides were about 25,000 men, which did make it a very large amount of men in and around the city. If you were a Longstreet, though, you probably would stack up your 25,000 men who are going to be mostly combat veterans against John Peck's relatively green command. However, Lee's old warhorse is going to get word that Hooker is launching his offensive and before there could be any further operations, he's going to begin to break off the siege. 
Casualties were 260 on the side of the Union, compared to around 900 on the Confederate side. It was kind of like the siege at Washington we talked about with D.H. Hill. With the Federals contained, the Rebels were able to forage, which was their main goal anyway. So, both sides would claim success. Let's close it out there for now. We covered quite a bit today. We had the Bayou Tesh Offensive, which was kicked off by Banks in Louisiana. Abel Strait and his men mounted on mules will raid into northern Alabama, being chased by Forrest and his troopers. There was further cavalry skirmishing in Tennessee, and Suffolk in Virginia is placed under siege, which will lock up Longstreet and quite a large part of Lee's army right before the Battle of Chancellorsville. Next week, we have two raids, one Union and one Confederate, that will affect both Hooker's and Grant's campaigns, so stay tuned for that. If you like what you hear, please make sure to leave a review. Posted in the description should be a link to the website as well as Patreon and Venmo information. Support for the general upkeep of the show is greatly appreciated. Feedback is always welcome. Questions, comments, concerns, the email is cwweeklypod at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening and have a great week. <laughs>